So tonight, Jesus' first miracle. What was Jesus' first miracle? Yep, turning water into wine. Interestingly, um, it is not found in the synoptic gospels. Now, what are the synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And why are they called synoptic? Two, two words, S-Y-N, sin, like synergy, okay? And optic, you can figure that out, right? They're all looking at the ministry and the life of Jesus from a similar perspective, right? Um, the synoptics are quite a bit different than John. And as I've indicated before, I think that uh, John was quite aware of the synoptics or the synoptic material in any event. Um, most commentators believe that John was written last and the more... Uh, I read John and study John for this. Uh, the more I'm convinced that he was well aware and assumed his audience was aware of the material in the synoptics, right? But uh, John wanted to offer something that the synoptics did not offer. And so as a result, here we have uh, this first miracle that is actually done uh, outside of Jesus' public ministry. This is a social event. Uh, so we're going to read it, and then we're going to jump into it. Um, <clears throat> so we, yes, we finally left John chapter 1. Isn't that awesome? It only took us two months. <laughs> and so I, I will expect that we will move through the balance of John more quickly. Um, chapter 1, uh, well, the prologue is just, yeah, it, it's just magnificent and it really required, I believe, the amount of time we spent on it. But this is chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from uh, the 2020 update of the New American Standard Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, what business do you have with me, woman? And I'll get to that in a minute. It sounds really rude. <laughs> My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, that is to the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. So that is the servants took the water to the head waiter. Now, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the groom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poorer wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. The disciples believed in him uh, and his disciples believed in him. So in the gospel of John, um, Jesus' miracles are called signs, simayon in Greek. Uh, we get our English word semaphore from semion. Do you know what a semaphore is? These are 
flags that are used to signal ships, right? They're signs. Well, what's the significance of a sign? A sign points to something beyond itself, outside itself, other than itself. We have a tendency when we consider miracles to be attracted to that thing, whatever happened, right? Uh, And to focus on the miracle itself. But these signs are intended to point beyond themselves. The Lord's not some magician and the miracles are not done for their own sake. Signs point to something or someone beyond themselves. The ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John is organized around seven major signs. The first half of the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 11, is organized around seven major signs. This one, which is turning water to wine. And then the second sign is contained at the end of chapter four, and it is healing uh, a Roman official's son. And then the third one, third sign, is healing is a healing at the pool of Bethesda uh, of a man who was unable to walk. The fourth is the feeding of the five thousand. The fifth sign, uh, and the feeding of five thousand, is the beginning of chapter six. And then the sixth, uh, excuse me, the fifth sign uh, is Jesus walking on the water. And that's at the end of John chapter six. Then there is the healing of the man born blind, which takes up all of John chapter nine. And then there's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So you can see that each of these signs becomes more and more incredible until Jesus actually raises a man from the dead who had been in his tomb for four days. Now, beginning in chapter 12, we enter into the passion of Jesus. We enter into the passion narrative and we start focusing on those final uh, days and then the crucifixion and resurrection, okay? So we have testimony from the signs. What other testimony or what other witnesses, I should say, do we have that point to Jesus? Well, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Um, And uh, then the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. John said, I wouldn't have known that he was the Messiah except uh, the one who sent me, that would be God, the Father, said that the one upon whom the Spirit descends, that is the Messiah, that is uh, the chosen one. So John the Baptist And the Holy Spirit and these signs all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's the purpose of this gospel, as I've indicated before. In fact, that's what the gospel says of itself. Uh, In chapter 20, I want to say verse 23, it says, These things are written uh, so that you may see that Jesus is the Son of God, and by, uh, by seeing them, you may believe, right? Leon Morris uh, in the New International Commentary says this about Jesus' first sign. But for him, that is John, the gospel writer, the miracles are all signs. They point beyond themselves. This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. So the point of this first sign 
uh, in John is to demonstrate that Jesus is the word. He's the agent of creation, the one through whom all things came into being. As with each of the seven signs, it proves that Jesus is the unique son of God. How else could he transform water into wine? This is no magic trick. Such a miracle requires supernatural manipulation of the natural order. Who's able to do that except the word, right? The word who was with God, the word who was God, the word through whom all things came into being. And his disciples believed. The question is, do you? I'm still not entirely sure what we're going to focus on on Sunday morning, but uh, it might be it's possible that we might look at this whole idea of miracles and whether we uh, are willing to believe in the suspension of the natural order in order for uh, God to achieve some greater end. But I want us to dispense with the idea that turning water into wine is intended as a proof that drinking alcohol is acceptable. That seems to be, you know, (coughs) what many people use this as a Uh, a precedent for. The reality is people drank wine throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. The Jews of Jesus' day drank wine. It was a staple of their diet. They didn't really have clean water. They drank wine. They drank water with wine in it because the alcohol would help to kill the bacteria in the impure water. But the ABV, the alcohol by volume, so if you go over there to Intrinsic and you look up on their little board, It will give you a number, right? All these different beers, whatever, it'll give you a different number. That's the alcohol by volume. So uh, they sell a little bit of wine over there, not much. Uh, They have their sangria and it will say that it's 9.1, right? Alcohol by volume, 9.1% is the alcohol content. It is likely that the wine that these people drank was lower than that, much lower than that probably half or less than that. So you would have to drink quite a bit of this wine in order to get drunk. However, it's obvious in the story that in a seven-day wedding, you have probably uh, imbibed in quite a bit of wine. And that's why the head waiter says, you know, usually they wait to bring the bad stuff out when everybody's kind of tipsy. But you've saved, you know, the good stuff for the end. Um, Drunkenness in the Bible is considered foolish. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, intoxicating drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And I put this other passage here. I wasn't going to refer to it, but I'm going to go to it. This is Proverbs, if you want to turn in your own copy of Scripture. Proverbs 23, And verse 29. So I want you to listen to this testimony. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has red eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go into taste mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will say perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. So think of a ship, 
right? This tall mast, which the sail is connected to. And at the top, there was like uh, this little basket, essentially, that uh, the sail rigger could climb up into. And that would be a really... <laughs> a place where if you're up there, you're going to get sick easily because the boat's going back and forth and you're way high up. So this is a, it's a great example here, right? They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When will I awake? I will seek another drink. So drunkenness is foolish in scripture. It's not merely in opposition to a particular commandment, it's just dumb. Um, there are many cautions against drunkenness. The Apostle Paul went a step further when he commanded Christians to be filled with the Spirit rather than becoming intoxicated. Uh, that's what it says in Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk or be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life, which leads to dissipation, other translations have it. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is, I think, a good passage to help us understand what happens, right? It's interesting that alcohol is called spirits, right? Spirits. So you can be, you know, intoxicated with spirits. You can be uh, influenced by these spirits or you can be influenced by the spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, however, wine is symbolic of blessing, celebration, and joy. And I've got a, a lot of texts here that I could show you. Um, this explains why it was such an important part of a wedding feast. Uh, listen to this quote from com the commentator Westcott. There's a Jewish saying, and here's the saying, without wine, there is no joy. And then he gives the basis for that. And the failure of the wine at a marriage feast would be most keenly felt. Right? So at the beginning uh, of our, uh, our passage here, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Okay, well, what, do you, what do we mean by on the third day? Well, if you recall um, when we were looking at this, uh, this time period where Jesus is, uh, uh, where John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and then points Jesus out to two of his own disciples. That is, John points Jesus out to two of John's disciples, and they go follow Jesus. <clears throat> then one of those two is Andrew. Andrew gets his brother. Jesus changes his brother's name. And then they go to Galilee, uh, presumably to Bethsaida, and they find Philip. Um, both Andrew and Simon are from Bethsaida. Philip is from Bethsaida. And then after he finds Philip, that is after Jesus finds Philip, then they go and uh, then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And uh, I spent two uh, lessons talking about Nathaniel last Wednesday and Sunday morning. Nathaniel, the, the true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel, <clears throat> excuse me, we find is from Cana of Galilee, right? So all of these people are friends and they're interconnected. Um, uh, go ahead and put that map up there, if you will. And I'm going to use my uh, nifty, my, my nifty laser pointer again. Okay. So down here is Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's in this region called Perea. Here's Jericho. 
Here's Jerusalem, right? Jesus came from Nazareth here, came all the way down here to be baptized. I think it is highly possible that even before they went to Galilee, that all of these men were down here, okay? And then they go back up to Galilee. Here's this whole region right here is called Galilee, right? This is Judea. This is Samaria. Um, the colors are uh, coded with who was responsible for that particular region, the ruler that was responsible for that region. This purple here and here, Galilee and Perea, uh, that was Herod Antipas that was uh, the ruler over these areas, right? The Decapolis, this is the 10 cities region. And then we go up here, there's the Sea of Galilee. Now this map is stretched so that you can see it better. So the, the sizes are not accurate at all. The Sea of Galilee, uh, would be a little bit different than this, okay? So what we need to see is that <clears throat> Jesus travels back up here. Um, there is a there's another map there, um, Autumn, and in that map I can point out. Okay, so now this makes the Sea of Galilee even smaller, but right up here, okay, we have Capernaum and Bethsaida, okay, right up here at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. All right, Autumn, go back to the other map, if you will, so that we can see a big... So, so this doesn't have them, but this would be Capernaum and Bethsaida up here, right? Um, so they traveled all the way up here to Bethsaida, and then uh, they, it says, on the third day... They went to this wedding. They were invited. They went to this wedding over here at Cana, all right? Cana is between three and nine miles from Nazareth. It depends on which modern site you associate with Cana, okay? But that's where it is. Cana is actually mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. Um, two, Jesus' first two miracles are performed there, um, or he initiates the second miracle there because when he meets the official son, he's at Cana of Galilee. That's at the end of chapter four. Um, so what is this third day? Well, there's one of two things it could mean. It could mean, uh, one commentator said it was three days journey from Bethany beyond the Jordan all the way up here, okay? Three days journey. But if we follow the, <clears throat> the original um, uh, day-by-day account that uh, I gave you from William Barclay, we would be on the fifth day, right? Because each time it says, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, then it says in the third day. So all of those next days led us to where they moved to Galilee, where they, they, they were, you know, went up to Galilee, okay? That would be the fifth time that he said the next day, right? Then when it says the third day from there, it will be the fifth day is the first day. The fifth day of all the next days is the first day. The sixth day is the second day, and the seventh day is the third day. So essentially, I think what this means is it is three days after they arrived in Galilee, if that makes sense. I don't know if you're interested in all that or not, but there you go. That's what you get when you get an, an in-depth uh, verse-by-verse study. Um, Jesus attended the feast in Cana with his mother and his new disciples, 
Cana is, as I said, several miles from Nazareth. Uh, and here's Craig Keener's account of that. He's talking about two different sites, modern sites. Either site would represent a reasonable walk from Nazareth and explain why Jesus' family would have known the family of the groom. Kepharkena, this is one of the modern locations that might be Cana, is three and a half miles northeast of Nazareth, and Kirbatkana is nine miles north of Nazareth. So that's why I said between three and nine miles. Well, um, Nathaniel was from Cana, and we don't find that out until we get to the end of uh, the Gospel of John. In John 21, 2, we find that Nathaniel is from Cana. So that is likely the connection to Jesus' disciples. Jesus' family apparently was connected because Jesus' mother was already there, right? In fact, she may have been one of the organizers for this thing. We don't know who the bride or the groom were, but apparently there is this close, interconnected uh, family and friend relationship. Now, let's get to this uh, <laughs> this gruff statement, right? It says um, that both Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding and then the wine ran out. Now, I'm going to get into why that would be so significant in a moment, but um, it just sounds so rough. Jesus says to her, what business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> That's just not the way to treat your mother, you know? Um, Jesus' response sounds rude in English, but perhaps the, the softened translation found in the New Living, uh, New Living Translation provides a more accurate connotation. Dear woman, that's not our problem. So if you call somebody woman today, that just sounds disrespectful, all right? If I said to either one of you ladies, well, woman, what do you want? Okay, unless I was joking, you'd be like, something wrong with Pastor Darrell right now. That's not the way to talk to someone. But this was a common way to address a woman in Jesus' day, all right? It was just the, the word gune. It might have been closer to lady, all right? So that's why dear woman. However, it was not common to address your mother like this because you were more familiar with your mother. Um, the more important clue to this is this, what business do you have to do with me? Listen to what Craig Keener says about that. A phrase like, what is there between us? That's another way to translate it. Would imply distancing or even hostility. Most commentators recognize the distancing, although the reason give, reasons given vary. Jesus may have been removing himself from the sphere of her paternal authority. You know, moms have a tendency to want to continue to be moms, don't they? Right? You know, you're, that, you, that's always going to be your mother. You're always their son. And uh, they have a tendency to kind of tell you what to do, right? Well, Mary had to transition from being Jesus' mother to being a disciple. Jesus recognized his disciples as his family now, and he was their leader. Listen to what Jesus said. This is in the synoptics. Uh, I'm going to read from Matthew 12, 50, but this is contained also in Mark 3. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my mother and sister. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now, it gets even more tricky in Mark chapter three, there's an account where Jesus was so busy that he wasn't even able to eat, 
like people were just crowding around him all the time. And it says in Mark 3, 21, that, uh, that his people, presumably his family, doesn't say his mother specifically, came to take charge of him. Are you ready for this? They were like, our brother's getting, he's gone crazy. We're just going to take him home. Wow. They really don't know who they're dealing with, see? And this is why Jesus, in fact, in John chapter four, Jesus said, uh, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Um, your family knows you probably better than anybody, right? They've seen all of your faults and your foibles and your frailties and so forth. And so although, you know, ideally your mother is the one that believes in you most and earliest, there's still a tendency to remember, oh yeah, but I remember when I used to clean you up after you pooped your diaper type of a thing, right? And there's got to be this transition away from that to recognize that this is... Uh, not just a man of God, definitely a man of God, but the God-man. So Jesus is not speaking to her as his mother. That's why he calls her a woman. Here's another interesting thing, by the way. <clears throat> She's always called the mother of Jesus. John never mentions her name. He never calls her Mary. Very interesting, right? Now, if we understand the relationship between John, that is not John the Baptist, but John, the author of our gospel, and Mary, we realize that it was very, very close. One of the things Jesus said on the cross, and this is uh, given in John's account, uh, the gospel of John's account, is he gives his closest disciple charge over his mother. At this point in time, even his brothers didn't believe in him. And so the only one he trusts is that man right there at the foot of the cross. And so he says, woman, behold your son, son or mother, uh, woman, behold your son, uh, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Anyway, uh, right there at the foot of the cross. So John never mentions his, mentions his own name in his gospel and he never mentions her name. To me, this is an indicator of humility, um, um, an unwillingness to, to flatter yourself by naming yourself and so forth. In, in, in any ev uh, event, uh, Craig Keener says, she, that is Mary, approached him not as her son, but as a miracle worker. So uh, not only is Jesus seeking to distance himself from his mother, but Keener is observing, and other commentators have as well, that she is treating Jesus as the one who can perform a miracle here. Perhaps, Keener says, uh, Jesus creates an obstacle partly to challenge her to greater faith. In the same regard, the Lord appeared to be abrupt and uh, challenging to a woman in Tyre and of Sidon. Like Mary, that woman had persistent faith and prevailed, resulting in the deliverance of her daughter from demonic oppression. Uh, that's found in Mark 7, 24 through 30. Um, th this woman keeps crying out after Jesus and uh, Jesus won't listen to her. And then finally he said, you know, I've only come to the lost, uh, the lost children of Israel. And she said, but she said, even the little dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus said, because of this statement, because of your faith, your daughter is healed. So there's this challenge that is there. Are you just wanting me to do a trick here, right? Are you just wanting me to wave my hand over this and perform a miracle? 
or are you really putting your faith in me? And in the case of that woman in Tyre of Sidon, and as we'll see in the case of his mother here, that is definitely what they do. They put faith in Jesus, but he may be challenging even his own mother to greater faith. Um, Jesus also told a parable. Um, uh, it's often called the parable of the importunate widow, the persistent widow. And in this parable, this widow keeps coming to a judge to get justice. So apparently she's had some land taken away from her, something like that. And uh, the judge is like, yeah, get away from me, woman, don't bother me, right? But she keeps coming to him and she keeps begging him. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna give this woman what she wants or she's gonna wear me out. And, you know, Jesus uses that as a way of saying, how much more will your father respond to you when you are persistent in prayer. And Jesus said, the question is not whether God's going to work. The question is when the son of man returns, will he even find faith on the earth? We have a tendency to just give up, ask once or twice and walk away. And we need to keep pushing, push. I first saw that on a bumper sticker on a church fan, right? P period, U period, S period, H period. What does it stand for? Pray until something happens. Man, shake heaven. Don't stop praying. Keep praying until God gives you an answer. He may not give you the answer you want, but you just want God's will. You don't want what you want. With God, a no is as good as a yes, but keep pushing. Pray until something happens. So there's another question here. Was Mary trying to get Jesus to enter into his public ministry here. Okay, Jesus, you've already called disciples. Here's an opportunity for you. This family uh, is, is gonna be embarrassed here. What are you gonna do? Uh, listen to what Leon Morris says, Leon Morris of the New International Commentary. Mary would have shared in this. In addition, she knew that angels had spoken about Jesus before his birth, that she had conceived him while still a virgin. She knew that his whole manner of life stamped him as different. She knew, in short, that Jesus was the Messiah. And it is not unlikely that she now tried to make him take such action as would show him to all as the Messiah she knew him to be. So why didn't Jesus want to do this? Well, he said it himself. He said, my time has not yet come or my hour has not come. Well, when he refers to his hour, he is referring to the passion, which we don't enter into until uh, the middle of John chapter 12. Jesus responded to his mother like this because he was not willing to escalate God's timetable. She knew her boy was God's son and then he could do anything. He knew what he was on earth to accomplish, however. Jesus wasn't on earth to work miracles. These miracles were signs that pointed to who he was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God. He would suffer, he would die, he would rise on the third day, but only when the time came, when the perfect moment in time arrived. Performing a great miracle in public at this point would be a spectacle that elevated hope in him as Messiah too soon. So he performed the miracle anyway, and it ended up being his first one. But did he do it publicly? Were you listening to the text? He did not. Who knew that Jesus turned the water into wine? The servants who filled the stone water pots knew. His mother knew. And his disciples knew. Nobody else knew. You want to hear something crazy? The groom didn't even know. 
The head waiter didn't know. The head waiter goes to the groom and said, man, this is really good wine. Why did you wait this long? Everybody's drunk now. They're not even going to know how good this wine is. Okay. He doesn't know where it came from. The groom's like, why? Yeah. Okay, fine. I don't know where it came from either. Um, So this is a sign that is related very late, right? Because the synoptics don't have it. But here it is. And we find that it is the first miracle. All right. What did he use as the receptacle for the miracle? Stone water pots, right? Now, these stone water pots were probably about, I don't know, two-thirds the height of this table that I'm standing in front of right now. And they were used for ceremonial washing. Basically, uh, when you when you came into a, you know something that required you to to cleanse yourself from the outside world, you would cup your hands right and run water over them. There would be servants at a wedding to do this. You'd hold your hands out. In fact, the very servants that filled these water pots. So probably the water pots didn't have any water in them because they'd already used them to ceremonially wash everybody's hands. Right? People walked by and. You know, the servants wash their hands. Now, this isn't hygienic like, you know, we wash our hands or should. Hopefully, you're all washing your hands after the pandemic, right? You didn't just go back to eating everything with dirty hands. And yeah, if you're getting sick all the time, don't wonder why. (laughs) Wash your hands, all right? But this was for ceremonial washing, right? This is for, for getting the cooties of the world off of you. This is not something that's present in scripture. It is a part of the um, the tradition of the elders. Jesus got into consistent controversy with the uh, the Jewish religious leaders over the fact that he didn't observe that ceremonial washing or other aspects of the tradition. Listen to this from Mark 7, 3 through 4. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. Well, Jesus got into trouble with these folks because he and his disciples eschewed following their traditions. Listen to the very next verse in Mark 7, uh, Mark 7, 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? Jesus' response was that they're hypocrites and they just practiced external religion rather than worshiping and obeying God from the heart. This is the next verse in Mark 7, uh, Mark 7, 6. But he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So with this first sign then, Jesus turning water from ritual stone pitchers into wine. He symbolized the end of a religion based upon externals and human tradition, ushering in a relational and compassionate experience with God, resulting in abundant joy. Wine represented joy. This couple was going to be shamed in the middle of their wedding. 
the taxing on their meager resources may have increased because not only did Jesus show up, but his disciples came with him. Well, they were invited too. Everybody's invited, but this couple didn't have a lot of money. And they ran out, and this would have been an embarrassment. And in spite of the fact that Jesus said, I, my hour has not yet come, he still listened to his mother, and he still had compassion on this family, and he performed an incredible, magnificent miracle, right? Um, Jesus didn't just provide enough, all right? It says there were six of these large stone water pots, six of them, right? They're at least halfway through the wedding. How much more wine do you think these people can drink? Okay. Jesus filled all six of those stone water pots up with wine, right? So listen to, uh, what, uh, Leon Morris says regarding the, uh, the abundance here. Um, it is usually held that it was all the water in the six water pots uh, that Jesus converted to wine, in which case Jesus was making a bountiful wedding gift to the couple who were evidently poor. Not only did he rescue them from what might well have been a crippling liability, a social liability, people would have always remembered. Oh yeah, I remember their wedding. They ran out of wine, okay? Not only did he rescue them from what, what may well have been a crippling liability, but he provided that they began their married life with an unexpected asset. Friends, when God supplies our needs, he supplies our needs according to his riches and glory. Amen? That's what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.19. All right. May God supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And I hope the same thing happens for you. But not only are we talking about quantity of wine, as we've already observed, we're talking about quality of wine. Listen to what the head waiter said again. Every man serves the good wine first, and when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Listen, friends, God gives the best gifts, does he not? Amen? And so we wait for him to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Now, believe it or not, that's where I'm going to end. I'm going to stop with this pericope, this section, and we're going to move on to Jesus cleansing the temple next week. So thank you for joining us online. We appreciate you, and we hope you'll join us again on Sunday. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewellchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page, there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests, all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically, all you need to do is text the word LIFEWELL, from your phone to 94000. And if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list, and you'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week.